Welcome to Financial Planning Conversations, brought to you by Finometrica. Your host, Craig Saunders. Hi there, folks. Welcome back to the program. Today, we're going to take a look at a research paper about the behaviour of individual investors. Now, this is a real honeypot of information for anybody who's ever wondered why people make the investment decisions that they do and why those decisions so often end up being mistakes. Paul Resnick discovered this paper and he was bowled over by the range and depth of the data and research and the conclusions that could be drawn from those. But before we go into it, I want to let you know how you can get your own copy, because I think that this is the sort of evidence that many of you might have wanted for many, many years to support your gut feel that people are consistently making the same investment mistakes when they go out to do it themselves. It's a very easy document to find. Just go to the Google machine and enter the title, The Behaviour of Individual Investors. You'll get a few Google Scholar results at the top, just ignore those. Then the first item in the search list is a link to the PDF of this paper. Or you can go to where this podcast lives at riskprofiling.com podcast and we'll have the link there for you to click on too. This paper is the work of two academics from the University of California, Brad Barber and Terence O'Dean. Terence turns out to be a particularly interesting guy. Over the years, he's done a lot of really interesting research into investing that appears to have been largely trapped inside the academic world. So today, we'll cross a little bit of that work over into the financial world because we can all learn quite a bit from it. Let's join Paul now. Hi, Paul. Good to see you again. Hi, Craig. Now, this, this paper, The Behaviour of Individual Investors, what do you make of it? I think it's revelatory, as often these uh, academic research projects are. It, uh, it reveals the biases that um, we humans have in terms of how we behave and particularly in how we invest and divest. The paper came out in 2011, but I have no doubt that it's still current. I don't see that any of these things could have changed in that time. I think that's right. Some of the research goes back um, several decades and uh, original Terry O'Dean's work, um, I remember reading at the turn of the century. Now, I've got to tell you, it's not a positive takeout if you're an individual investor because it comes across that you're basically a mug. You're going to choose bad stocks, you're going to overtrade them and you're going to pay too much in fees while you do it. It seems to be the case. Um, certainly when I talk with lots of investors, they don't seem to um, have a very good feel for their actual returns. They remember the good ones, they don't talk about the bad ones. And it wouldn't surprise me that uh, um, the behaviour of investors is based on, uh, I really don't trust the institutions, and we certainly see that in Australia. I'm sure I can do a better job managing it myself. And um, on the face of it, they may think they do. Well, reporting returns is an interesting thing because you would, you would certainly have encountered this. I know I have. People say, I bought my house for a million dollars. I sold it for two million dollars. I made a million dollars profit. And you say to them, but did you renovate your house? Oh, yeah, I spent half a million on it. We really only made half a million. No, no, I made a million dollars profit because I bought it and sold it for, for more. People are terribly bad at reporting this stuff to themselves. Well, I think there's two parts. Um, we're predominantly financially illiterate. Um, I've read a number of research projects around the world where they've standardised questions and, gosh, maybe 2 or 3% of the community um, in any country is the best you can say are financially literate and able to, to understand how the numbers work. And in, we're, very, we're very accomplished at... Um, doing shortcuts, mental shortcuts. And the easiest one is to say, what was the previous high? Or let me divide one number by the other. Yes, your value may uh, 
have doubled, but it doubled over 25 years. There was a chunk of work that went on in between. Inflation also played its role, and the real return, maybe 2 3 or 4%. And in fact, it, when people break down house price increases, that's what they always come up with, that it's inflation plus 1 or 2%. Well, certainly historically, the, the, the primary piece of research I saw was um, out, of, out of Holland, where the, this was the longest established database of prices, and along one of the canals, returns were in the longer term inflation, plus or minus 1%. So let's look at some of the, the stories in this paper, because one of the things that they had that we don't normally have is a vast pool of data available to them. So they weren't just drawing on one set of data, it was from all different markets and different time frames. And again and again and again, it comes back to say that Joe Public's just awful at picking stocks. They underperformed the benchmark even before fees, which begs the question, why would they bother? Fear, um, overconfidence. My suspicion is that if we measured the risk tolerance of this community, they would be more risk tolerant than investors that use managed funds. Um, so overconfidence, as we know, results in people believing they're better at something than others. And the net result is they buy, they sell. The transaction costs are never accounted for. The tax consequences invariably um, result in, uh, in, in taxes being paid because we tend to sell winners hold losers, that means we generate a taxable outcome, which may not be taken into account in the process. Let's go to that. It's called the disposition effect, this tendency to, to, to sell the winners and hold the losers. Tell us what's involved in that. I think it's denial. Um, selling a loser tells you that you made a mistake. Selling a winner is confirmation of your genius. You see, I came up with a rational reason, which was I sold the winner because it, bought, it reached the price target that I had for it when I bought it. I haven't yet sold the loser because it hasn't yet reached its price target. Isn't that a logically consistent position? It's a piece of genius that I'm sure delivers. What returns have you had over the last few years, Craig? Uh, a gentleman never tells. A gentleman never tells. So yeah, is it a false expectation? Is it an, is, is it an ego? It's, an, it's intriguing to me. And I think overconfidence is possibly the right thing to point to, that people just go, no, I'm smarter than them. I think it's hope. I think um, we're fundamentally an optimistic community. And hope um, prevails that uh, um, these managed funds are appalling. Um, they charge too much, um, particularly if they're associated with a bank. We know there's been massive levels of mis-selling. We're unsure about the full fee disclosure. I can be in control if I manage direct equities myself because there is nothing between me and the underlying stock that I bought. Now a couple of things that the paper finds about the disposition effect. One is that it's more pronounced for financially unsophisticated investors, possibly suggesting that they don't have the depth of experience to understand the volatility that can come from investments, do you think? Or that they're, they're not comfortable with reading more broadly to see uh, to see what the other opportunities and options are. So the classic argument is home country bias, and it requires a fairly sophisticated um, 
worldview to actually research and feel confident and access and learn how to access those, uh, those global markets. Individual investors have a really small, narrow worldview. They buy things that are very close to them. They buy shares in the supermarket where they shop. They buy a rental property in the suburb next to them or in their own suburb. So they're not diversifying across markets and across asset classes. They're, they're, they've got a very narrow view that they bring to this. Well, they're buying things they're comfortable with. Um, they're buying... Which Warren Buffett would applaud. Yes. Um, what do they know of, um, of companies in South America? How would they interpret the clock industry in Switzerland? Um, how... Oh, it's ticking away, Paul. It's ticking away. <laughs> Thank you, Craig. Um, so familiarity is, uh, is the same. Who do we marry? We marry people that are from the same religion, from the same village, and with the same mindset, it, it is the safest thing to do, is to uh, remain associated with things that we grew up with. And recency and closeness are good characteristics of that. So uh, it's, it's quite natural, I suspect, for the less sophisticated to be much more comfortable with, uh, with assets they know. And certainly in the US, there was a very strong um, engagement in taking opportunities or investment opportunities in the company in which you worked, which of course is double jeopardy. Um, you, you, it's both your job and your portfolio go under when things go astray. Now that requires you to feel, um, be critically aware of who you're working for. And of course that's very difficult. Um, many employers work very hard to, to make themselves very important in your life and um, in your sense of self-worth. Um, to, to get a sense of, I won't invest in my employer, I will invest in something else, can be quite difficult. One of the questions that this paper raised for me has been a long-standing question for me. Do, do individuals buy different stocks to, to the institutions? So are they going out, say, with self-managed super funds in Australia and mimicking an index fund across the, the top 200, or are they going out trying to to pick the, the five-bagger, you know, the 500% return. And Odin used a useful line, I think, retail investors have a taste for stocks with lottery-like payoffs. I think he's onto something there. I think a lot of retail investors are using the share market not as an incremental investment machine, but, but as a lottery with a big payoff at the end. Well, certainly they've, they've had very different goals from a fund manager. And a fund manager is looking to build a larger business. You can't do that on small cap stocks or micro cap stocks. You just can't get access to them. So most professional managers work in the top 200, 300, 400 stocks. Um, individual investors can take a position, can move a position in smaller stocks. And of course, when you look at something at one cent or five cents or 10 cents, you can, it looks like it could double very easily. So it's a matter of horses for courses to some degree. And um, it wouldn't surprise me at all that, uh, that in every portfolio somebody's got something tucked away unless they're very experienced and understand that uh, when something's 10 cents, there's a reason that it's 10 cents. That said, Odin does go to, to some interesting examples around this, particularly 
where, where, where he says that not everyone's holding these penny dreadfuls. People are buying legitimate index-based stocks as well. But he also points to them possibly being the liquidity that the institutions need on the other side of the trade to get, to get in and out of stuff. And when he analyzes that down, again, it looks like it's the small guy who gets screwed by being on the other side of a trade with an institution. Well, I think that's, that sounds once again common sense. The, 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 um, the institution will run quite a rules-based process for what to buy and sell and for its margins. An individual investor is much more likely to be making emotional decisions or decisions based on their actual liquidity. Now, there will, of course, be times when the, um, when the professional manager has cash flow um, demands as well, but largely um, the business will be stable by comparison. So it makes very good sense to believe that uh, given a choice, a professional manager that spent 20 years studying and working with others compared to somebody who's constructing a portfolio from what they read about in the paper is going to come off second best to the professional manager. You've raised what they read about in the paper. That's another one of the aspects of, of the Odeen paper that, that we want to talk about. A stock that's getting a lot of coverage is going to get a lot of purchases. It would seem so. Um, I read about it, it sounds good. Um, it's, it's much easier than I've been doing research into a particular segment and I've got a comparative analysis of other businesses that are fairly similar and this one looks well priced. You know, the former is a very easy decision, particularly if I've got to go to coffee or play bowls. The, the latter requires uh, quite a commitment to, uh, to research and judgment. So as I mentioned at the top, individuals make these common mistakes. The first is choosing the wrong stocks. The second is that they trade them too often, which has the tax impacts that you raised and also the timing impacts of just getting that wrong and losing capital along the way. But it also generates transaction costs and they're the biggest drag that any of us face. And the margins are quite small. Um, you know, the, the equity risk premium around the world is 3, 4, 5% on average. If you've got high transaction costs, tax costs, that drags it down. And there's nothing in this data. And remember, what we're looking at here is the, um, is the mistiming issues for individuals with direct equities. When we look at their purchases of managed funds, it's not altogether very different. Um, I was looking at some data um, from the US that, that, that there is a lag effect that uh, most of the trades, when the market's booming, money goes in, and when the market's crashing, money comes out. So um, th th there's the same level of inefficiency. Well, that's pretty much what we built ETFs for, wasn't it? Just to make that all happen quicker and easier. Well, it provides an opportunity to do that quite instantly. Um, I come back to, to the fundamental argument that um, you have a better chance of getting a reasonable return by having a diversified portfolio that you just hold on to for the longer term, which is what Odeen is arguing, um, as well as probably a hundred other very smart uh, researchers than anybody actually trading a portfolio, trying to pick. Because the issue is this, what do you buy? When do you buy it? When do you sell it? Those are three very difficult decisions to make. And unless you've, you're committed to doing several hours of research a day, you're very likely to make the wrong decision. Interestingly, I, I found some of the Odeen research really 
interesting because of the way that he looked at analysing it. One of the analyses that he did was, let's take a look at, at Joe Average. How, how is he doing one day out from his purchase, three days out from his purchase, five days out from his purchase, six months? And interestingly, in the one, three, five days, the individual investor was often doing quite well, but by the time it got to 60, 90, 180 days, they were getting creamed every single time, which I don't know what the answer for that is, whether, it, whether it's maybe that they were only dealing with other Joe Average investors and the market only had three days worth of strength left in it and then it just, just petered out. I think there might well be something like that. So if it's newsworthy and if we take the view that it is in the news, it's a small, it's a small, um, a small covered stock, everybody's buying it, it will push the price up. It's certainly true in Australia. Um, what we see is we have a massive um, ex exposure of retirees to direct equities and it's argued that they hold the, uh, the direct equity market is, is beholden to that community and if the dividend ratios get dropped there will be um, substantial selling of stock. A Telstra in Australia, the main telco here went from $3 three and a half, four years ago to $6 now based solely on its, on its dividend and nothing else. And what we're beginning to see now, a number of companies saying, ahem, ahem, we're not sure that we can retain the dividend payouts. Another thing that Odin found was that people who try to predict the market with a limit order, where you say, okay, I'll sell today, but I'll only sell at $12, I won't sell at, at the market, which might be $11.50. So clearly you do that because you think you can outdo what the market is doing, but what he found was you don't, that people don't outdo the market, they underperform the market at limit prices compared to just market orders. Letting it run. Um, I think, once again, I suspect it's all about overconfidence, that you set in rules, almost any rule, to buy or sell is likely to destroy value. Um, I've come to the notion that the closer you can get to the underlying asset and to leave it for the longest, it's the safest way to make money. Everything else is going to be subject to an emotional decision or a decision driven by circumstance. You can bet your bottom dollar if you need to sell something, you'll get the bottom price of the day. And when you buy it, it'll be at the top price of the day. And no, neither of them will be an appropriate time in the cycle unless you're very fortunate. So having a very disciplined approach, having an investment policy um, statement where you've worked out what you're going to do, not just as an investor, but what you're going to do in certain circumstances. And the most obvious one is markets are booming, should you be chasing? Or markets are crashing, should you be divesting? Um, clearly, they are value-destroying behaviours. Yeah, and, and the pressure... It the markets are booming, should you be chasing? That's a very real pressure. When, if you're sitting there looking at money in the bank earning three, two, three percent, when money in the market's earning eight or ten, you've got to be fairly strong-willed to not be whipping that money out and putting it into the market. Well, you have to understand the consequences. One of the bits that always uh, surprises me and when I share it with advisors is the, the very small equity risk premium you get from diversification. You, know, you you clear away the, the big screamers, but what you're left with is after inflation, 3 4%, 5% is the long-term average return. And if you mess that up, 
through market timing, through excess transaction costs, tax costs, or simply changing the weighting because markets are moving, you're going to damage that by two, maybe 300 basis points. You can certainly see it in the data that Dalbar showed. Now, in this case, Dalbar is the difference between the performance of funds versus investors. So it's a different community yeah. to the ones that um, Odin and Barber are looking at. But they, they say historically it's 4.5%, 450 basis points. I was looking at the Morningstar data, which is done with it in a different model, and that was close to 200 basis points. So that's the underperformance that investors get for following the trends, emotional investing, if you will. So if we wrap all this up into, into a takeout for financial advisors, that there's a very definite value that they can add to somebody's life if they get them off this path that we've been talking about of doing it themselves where they make all these mistakes and basically get them into an ordered process of investment. It's no more profound than that, yes. What it's showing is that the fundamental biases in our decision-making will destroy value. And it's difficult to suspend those biases. They're, uh, they're ones that make us the people that we are. That's the benefit of going to a good advisor. It's the challenge, of course, for robo-advisors because they're not necessarily very good at measuring personality, personalising portfolios, dealing with couple differences, or I would add even assessing risk tolerance from the things we've seen. So um, robos are going to be very vulnerable unless they've taken a, a very enthusiastic approach to understanding their clients. And as far as I can see at the moment, a goodly chunk of them are in the business of quick and not good. Terrific, Paul. Thanks for that. Good to talk to you again. Thank you, Craig. Before I say goodbye, a reminder about where to find that research paper. Search for The Behaviour of Individual Investors or head over to the website riskprofiling.com and you'll find a link there where you can download it. It's a good read. We can really only scratch the surface of some of the more detailed stuff here. Also, a reminder that you can now use Facebook to ask us questions, send us comments, or give us a link to your favourite cat video. Just search on Facebook for Financial Planning Conversations and we will come up top of your list. And that's today wrapped up. Thanks for being with us. Financial Planning Conversations is proudly brought to you by Finometrica, the world's leading supplier of tools for assessing investment suitability.